I often think that neoliberalism is what lovelessness looks like in public. It looks like generations of children, overwhelmingly black and brown, raised amidst a landscape of lack of care. It looks like the rat-infested schools of Detroit. It looks like water pipes leaking lead and poisoning young minds in Flint, Michigan. It looks like foreclosed mortgages on homes that were built to collapse. It looks like famished hospitals that feel more like jails and overstuffed jails that are humanity's best approximation of hell. It looks like trashing the beauty of the planet as if it had no value at all. It is, much like Trump himself, greed and carelessness incarnate. Noah's Not Enough was published on June 12th. Exactly one week later, that list badly needed to be updated. Lovelessness in public also looks like the charred remains of Grenfell Tower. Every decision that contributed to that epic crime was grounded in a brutal calculus that systematically discounted the lives of poor people, overwhelmingly people of color. The decision to save money on flammable cladding, the decision not to install sprinklers, not to fix alarm systems or fire doors, or the decision to cut the number of firefighters, and to do all of this in a city absolutely coursing with private wealth. This is lovelessness. This city is filled with other fire trap public housing estates that are surrounded with gleaming half-empty condo towers. Those shiny boxes in the sky that are in large part about parking untaxed income made from speculative finance in full confidence that the value of that shiny box will keep increasing year after year, never mind what it means to millions of people who are denied their human right to safe and affordable housing. It is worth noting that putting his name on shiny half-empty towers like that is Donald Trump's line of business. Trump's gilded condo towers with their splashy aesthetics pitched perfectly to newly minted oligarchs from Moscow to Colombia fit the bill perfectly. But back to Grenfell. It strikes me that there is something just so telling about that flammable cladding, about the decision to invest in surfaces over substance, in the exterior, the outward facing, rather than the interior. Something that speaks to the crisis of values, of morality, that is central to the crisis of our time. We live in countries that hire armies to watch us in our daily lives, to monitor emails and text messages and online shopping, peering at us through street cameras and maybe even phone cameras, collecting, collating, facially recognizing. Yet this panopticon state, all-seeing and all-knowing, cannot see the most glaring of human needs for shelter, for safety, for health care, for clean water and clean air. Nor can it apparently perform the most basic tasks of care. It cannot fix broken alar fire alarms. It cannot figure out how to help people whose homes have burned down 
on their watch. Choices are being made about what to see, about what to watch, about what not to see, and what to studiously ignore. I cannot help feeling that the cladding was part of this. Yes, perhaps it was about insulation and energy savings, as they say, but we know it was also about aesthetics for the people on the outside, worried about their property values. A kind of party dress on a death trap. No, a party dress as a death trap. A kind of disguise. And it's part of a culture that is all about pretty packaging. Much of it cheap and disposable, never mind the costs to people or the planet. And this has something in common with Trump too, that hollowest of men. In the book, I do call him an Igor of all things fake. Fake body parts, fake wrestling, fake reality TV, fake news, and his whole fake business model, and of course, lots of fake gold. It's all on the surface, hiding the desperate rot at the core. He runs the country just as he ran his business. It's the never-ending Trump show constantly urging us to look over there, gasp at the latest tweet, the latest palace drama, while the country is further looted, further privatized, further hollowed out. It's all shiny surfaces, but don't set a match anywhere near it because the whole thing is rigged to blow. It's an interesting thing, isn't it, that so often public action, private action, is catapulted into being realized through trauma, through shock. I mean, so many of the greatest charities have been started because a personal disaster happened and somebody said, I'm going to do something about this for other people. And in your book, you make the point that, in a sense, we shouldn't have been shocked because Trump was, he was a coming. You've talked really most powerfully at the end of the book about what happens when you can't just say no any longer. You have to say yes to things. And this idea that our imagination has been squashed and held in abeyance because people have thought that dreams were foolish and almost irresponsible. And although the book is full of wonderful facts, I just want to give you a quote from Oscar Wilde, uh, something he wrote in 1891. A map of the world that does not include utopia is not worth even glancing at, for it leaves out the one country at which humanity is always landing. And when humanity lands there, it looks out and seeing a better country sets sail. So that's really your call to action, isn't it? For us to believe in utopia in order to galvanize us into thinking about what practical actions are we going to take. In other words, to have dreams and yeah. then to try to work out how do you practically realize them. It's taken me a long time to get to this place because, you know, I am a child of the neoliberal era. I grew up in the 80s during this period, which really was a war on the imagination. And we shouldn't play down the significance of the austerity project being in crisis inside the Tory party in this country because we've been watching the sort of slow decay of that ideological project that began under Reagan and Thatcher. It's not like it dies all at once. The belief in the policies is what died first, but then they continued to stumble around, which is why a lot of people call it a zombie ideology. 
But the part that proved sturdiest was the war on the imagination. There is no alternative. I've been part of movements that have been really good at saying no to trade deals, to austerity, to, uh, you know, to pipelines. But when it came to actually saying, well, what does the world look like? We kind of froze up because we just didn't have a muscle memory of, of that kind of work. So it's really, I guess, a call for, for reawakening the utopian imagination, which is something that I think is something we need the help of artists to do. To be honest, I feel like it is only really partially the work of political writers like me. One of the problems we have is we're so immersed in dystopian visions of the future, in art, in film, in literature. One of the things we saw immediately after Trump was elected was just the bestseller lists being filled with dystopian fiction. 1984. 1984, Brave New World, Handmaid's Tale. Mm -hmm. And it's just what I worry, and I've worried about this for a long time in the context of climate change, that at a certain point it becomes, like if you read enough stories that tell you the uh, variations on the same narrative of we're all going to be, you know, stumbling down a road trying to eat each other's kids, that will eventually, you know, become a self-fulfilling prophecy. and, And it is a much bigger challenge to imagine a different future. And because that, that story is hardwired in us. It's in the Bible, you know, it's great floods and a small group of believers gets picked out and brought to the golden city in the sky or put on the boat, you know, whatever it is. So we've got that story in us really deep of apocalyptic end and a small chosen few survive as opposed to coming together in crisis and, res- and, and really responding to that wake-up call. I think this area of saying, like, if it's a bully in town, you spend all your time talking about them, and they take up all your energy, and you end up actually not really concentrating on, on your needs. You just mm-hmm. really, you know, talk about them all the time, which is why I think that we should be worried about the fact that we talk about Trump so much, mm-hmm. and we, you know, we, we co- cover all his actions instead of getting on with our work, which is what you're really suggesting. Yeah. What is our work? This idea that it's been foolish to be a dreamer, do you think that these new movements that are breaking forward are really beginning to change into not just a core positive action, but practical working groups? In your book, at the end, you say, right, well, we've got to look at living wages, we've got to look at fossil fuels ending, we've got to look at all kinds of things. And you think, oh, that's great, that's, you can get really stuck into that. But that's a lot of work for a lot of people. How do we do that? Well, the, the end of the book is sort of... <laughs> Not an unfair question, I don't think. Well, the, the, fir- the first part of it is, I, you know, I do think that there is a shift going on in popular movements where there's, there's an evolution of, of movements that began in that posture of no, changing, evolving, and beginning to propose. And we saw, that, we saw this really clearly in the Sanders campaign in, in the United States, which, of course, was a, a political campaign that won 13 million votes, carried 22 states in the United States, came within arm's reach of winning the Democratic primary. And I believe if that had happened, I think, I think Bernie really could have beaten Trump. And that was grounded in a positive vision of what the next economy should look like. There is clearly that evolution. And I see this also in the climate movement, where, for instance, the, the anti-fracking movement was started off in that sort of purely that posture of no, which, as you say, gets exhausting. You have to do the, fight the no battles. You have to protect your battle. But, at, but the fracking movement, the anti-fracking movement in the U.S., and this is true here in the U.K., has also morphed into the single greatest driving force for the call to get to 100% renewable energy. So it's yes and no woven together. It's only been a 
couple of months since I interviewed Angela Davis on the stage about her movement for change mm -hmm. and the whole issue, which is particularly true in, in America, but it's also true in the UK, yeah. about how the penal codes are used. But to... An Angela's a great example. She never lost the utopian imagination. No. She has always defined herself as an abolitionist, a prison abolitionist. That is her end goal. So, And it's an incredibly bold dream, and you say that in many, most circles in the United States, and people can't wrap their heads around it. So yes, in, in the short term, she is fighting you know, for reduced prison populations against police violence. Violence, but that long-term vision of a world without prisons, she never let go of, and she foregrounds. She's one of the very few. Yeah, there are dreams that humanity has put in practice. I mean, when I was a little girl, nobody believed that everybody should and could read and write if they were functioningly able to. And now nobody thinks that that is sort of impossible as a dream. One of the things that we talked about was the huge divisions, the racial divisions, the poverty divisions, the divisions between those who have and those who have not, including ourselves. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you make the point in the book that many of the things that white people are now experiencing as shocks are not at all shocks to black communities, they're not at all shocks, mm -hmm. shock to poor communities, because it's been like that for a long time. Mm -hmm. And somehow we didn't notice or we didn't choose to see. It was, a, it was a, an invisible reality. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How can we prevent the fact that a lot of those groups now are kind of saying to us, well, you weren't there for us before. Well, I think there's an opportunity right now in this city in the question of who's going to the response to the fire. You know, is it going to be this top-down charity-based model, or is there going to be a willingness to be led by the people who are most impacted when they're ready, not to foist plans on them? This word shock gets thrown around, right? And one of the things I wanted to do in the book was interrogate this, this posture of shock that a lot of white liberals had assumed in response to Trump, which I think is really problematic because if, you're, you know, if you claim to be in a state of shock, as opposed to what I'm, you know, I'm arguing in the book, that maybe it's a, more like a state of horror, the sort of horror of recognition, a state of shock means you're innocent and you're not part of that system. When there is a massive trauma, like the, the, the Grenfell Tower catastrophe, crime scene, the most painful part of that for people is a feeling of helplessness. And, you know, I've, having reported from disaster zones like the Asian tsunami in 2005 or Katrina and spoken to many, many people who have lived through moments like that, that is always the feeling that is most haunting to people. And that really is what... what is the difference between a true trauma and something terrible happening. And that's why it is re-traumatizing <laughs> to try to impose plans on the people who were the victims of this mm -hmm. and to say, well, you know, we're the outside charity, we have your best interest at heart, we're gonna, you, you just sit back and be passive or we figured out how to rebuild and here's the plan and we'll consult you, but ultimately you don't have self-determination. It's not just that that's incredibly anti-democratic and elitist, it's also that it is re-traumatizing because the best way to get over that feeling of powerlessness is to be able to help. <laughs> so I think a huge part of it is now, I have a friend in Australia named Marwa Johnson, who's um, an indigenous youth leader fighting the hugest, what would be the hugest coal mine in the world if they get it built, the Adani coal mine. And, you know, what she says is white people need to learn to follow. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I think she's right.
Well, I mean, this came up, didn't it? <laughs> this really became a, a central debate as, in, for the Washington March. Mm -hmm. I mean, the Women's March started as an idea in um, Hawaii by a couple of people and then suddenly taking fire mm -hmm. was then a debatable issue around, well, is it going to be white women who are leading it or is it going to be black women who are going to say, let us lead for a change because actually we have more knowledge mm -hmm. of the reality in a totally systemic way. And I think there is a huge education that we have on our hands as white people, speaking as a white woman. Acknowledging that it's not only white people in this room, so let's... Yes, yeah, okay. but, but actually we do have a huge blind spot, a massive blind spot, and I think it's just as language, we've, you know, we've found the language of patriarchy difficult. We, have, we find the language of racism and white supremacy very difficult. Lots of language that actually forces us to rethink systems very hard. And I think, again, what your book is saying is, could we stop being so nervous of this language and start assessing it, understanding it, and working with it? It's easy to come out on the streets, finally, but after that, there is also an awful lot of meetings, talking, mm -hmm. working. You know, we, we have to do work to, to create a different situation. We can't just be protesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and there does need to be, I think, that vision for, you know, I end the book, as you say, with that list of all the things that, that need to happen. But the context for that is a people's platform. It's an example of a people's platform that I was part of drafting in Canada called the Leap Manifesto, which was endorsed by hundreds of organizations from a broad range and try to come to some common ground. And we did do that with the manifesto. And it's been a really interesting process because now people are taking it, changing it, using it to run for municipal office. We're working with the uh, city council in LA. We, uh, they throw around uh, very liberally uh, that we need intersectional, uh, an intersectional analysis, but also intersectional solutions. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and so using the, the, the intersectional lens of the LEAP manifesto that says, okay, we, we know we have to get to 100% renewable energy very, very rapidly. How do we design policies that that do that while systematically fighting economic inequality and begin to heal the wounds that date back to our country's founding. And one principle of that is exactly what they are doing on the ground in, in, in Standing Rock, which is um, the, the principle of front lines first, that the, that the people who had the worst deal, whose bodies were poisoned, um, whose lands were ravaged, under a current, our current extractive economy need to be first in line to own and control their own renewable energy projects. And they shouldn't have to fund it through foundations. They shouldn't have to fund it through Kickstarter campaigns. Mm -hmm. they should, it should be funded with tax dollars as a drop in the ocean of what is owed to them um, for all of the damage and all of the theft. Um, so, you know, that's in the LEAP manifesto, and, and, and in LA, they struck a LEAP commission for how their city can embody these principles, and it's councillors working with, um, with local climate justice activists. So we're really excited to see where that leads. But I think this looks different everywhere, but it begins with getting in a room filled with people who are not the usual people you get in a room with, and having difficult conversations, good mediation, really matters. That's what we found with the leap is like it, the conversations are going to be difficult. People are going to be defensive. 
there is difficult history that will have to be worked through. So understand that. Um, if you're not arguing, it means your coalition isn't big enough. That was one of our mottos. But there are ways to negotiate conflict um, that are skillful, you know, mm -hmm. and there are very skilled people who know how to help you do this so that it doesn't completely fall apart at the first sign of conflict, which is another problem that we have, you know. And so we, you know, we had that difficult and, and ultimately really gratifying experience of, of working through those difficult conflicts and coming up with a common platform, which is, I think, work that we all need to do so that we aren't only waiting for messianic figures. I think what's happened in this country with the interplay between momentum and Jeremy Corbyn is really interesting because you have that inside-outside dynamic, and it isn't only a, this dynamic that, unfortunately, we have too much in North America where all of the power is just inside official politics. It's kind of a fan relationship as opposed to a truly participatory crowdsourcing relationship. Collective action, working out how to make change together. These are the things that we have to relearn. Having <clears throat> utopian ideas, not just dystopian anger, this is really important. And being very grateful that Naomi Klein's still doing her stuff. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much, Julie.